In all areas, the UK continues to backtrack. The European Union argues that but we, be, we should be subject to rules of the club that we have left. The precondition is the level playing field. Uh, we can deliver a real Brexit that achieves our objectives. But if there is not a deal, we still need the Irish Protocol or the Northern Irish Protocol fully implemented. I'm going to miss being the pantomime villain. Hello and welcome to Brexit Republic, RTE's podcast on Brexit. I'm Tony Connolly, RTE's Europe editor in Brussels. I'm Sean Whelan, RTE's correspondent in London. And I'm Colm O'Mungoyne, RTE's deputy foreign editor in Dublin. Each week, Brexit Republic assesses all the latest Brexit developments in Brussels, London and Dublin. This week, London and Brussels attempt to lower the temperature on the Northern Ireland Protocol after an exchange of barbed letters between the UK's Michael Gove and his opposite number, Maros Shevchevic, on who's to blame for the current slump in relations. We'll assess how the meeting between both men went in London on Thursday night and where we go from here. And while Europe worries about sending British sausages to Belfast and garden bulbs to Ballymena, London and Brussels have been running the numbers on the huge impact of Covid and Brexit on their economies. And we'll have a German view of life in Northern Ireland under the protocol. But first to you, Tony, Michael Gove and Mara Shevchevich meeting in London. Michal Martin was saying during the week it was time to dial down the rhetoric. There was pretty hard rhetoric going into this meeting, but there seemed to be a sense of calm in the statement issued in the readout afterwards. Yeah, it was great to know that in the era of emails and Zoom calls that letters actually matter. And there was a, a very strong letter from Michael Gove last week and then an equally strong response from Mara Shevchevic this week. And that meant that going into this meeting, the mood was fairly tense and, and electric over the Northern Ireland Protocol and, of course, everything leading back to the Article 16 fiasco a few weeks ago. They, they spoke for three and a half hours or so. Most of it was one-on-one, we're told. They ordered in steak and roast potatoes via Deliveroo and then issued a joint statement afterwards. So based on that, yeah, clearly they tried to lower the temperature. They're working with within the structures they have, the Joint Committee, the Specialised Committee, uh, and they're going to have a, a full Joint Committee meeting sometime before the 23rd of February. But I think, you know, for the EU side, they got a commitment from London to to implement what they had agreed in December. Remember, all of last year, they had been squabbling over how to implement the protocol. Then on December 17th, both sides signed off on a, a new agreement, which foresaw two grace periods, trusted trader schemes for supermarkets, simplified export health certificates for people bringing in food from Great Britain into Northern Ireland. And in exchange, the EU was insisting on real-time access to the UK's import clearance database. But the letter from Maros Shevchevic to Gove on Wednesday night said, look, these things are not happening. We're not getting this access. You're not fulfilling your part of the bargain. So how can you come and ask us for flexibilities and permanent derogations from some of the aspects of the protocol if you're not fulfilling your your bit? So the statement obviously said that both sides would spare no efforts in implementing what had been de- agreed in December. But at the same time, they said they would do everything to to minimise the disruption of ordinary life in Northern Ireland. And of course, that is the big wedge that the UK is trying to push into this discussion. Whatever happens with the protocol, we know it's a big change, but 
the ultimate objective for people should surely be that life should go on as normal as possible despite these changes. Sean, just on that rhetoric leading up to this meeting and the contrast with the statement afterwards, what can we assume happened in the course of the meeting that seems to have dialed down at least temporarily on the UK side of things the peevishness that was being expressed in Michael Gove's letter to Maros Shevchevich? Well, I think the background on this has been literally weeks of MPs almost all of them from the DUP, standing up in the House of Commons or coming in via the video links and saying, you must activate Article 16 of the protocol. This is just outrageous what's happening. People can't get supplies through. There are problems with a whole raft of different businesses trying to import goods principally into Northern Ireland, but also a few export-related issues as well. So they've been chipping away at the government and trying to wring a commitment out of them to activate Article 16. You may recall Boris Johnson saying he would have no hesitation in activating this Article 16, this safeguarding clause. Now, I read it at the time as him giving the the obligatory get-out-of-jail card to somebody who is on the opposition benches but can prove useful to the government from time to time. Uh, They never cut themselves off completely. But the tenor of what he was saying and what Michael Gove was saying afterwards and in uh, several question times over the past several weeks has been, yes, they'll tell the DUP what they want to hear, that they they would, of course, in extremists, pull the uh, Article 16 lever. But generally, they want to just get on with implementing the protocol and working through what the Prime Minister himself referred to as the teething troubles, which everybody thought there would be problems perhaps not quite of the the scale that have uh, hit, but that there would be problems to be worked through. Um, I didn't get a sense that the government itself wanted to change things necessarily, renegotiate them, not immediately. But they were gifted this great opportunity by the European Commission in the uh, vaccine debacle, where they, however short-lived it was, did put in an Article 16 activation measure into their vaccine-related documentation. And that open the goal because it was the wrong thing to do by the European Commission and that has allowed Michael Gove to come back in with that pretty sharp letter uh, a matter of days later where he was looking for these grace periods that were set to run most of them until uh, what is it April and uh, July and uh, one to the end of this year saying no all of them should be pushed out until the first of right. January and do we know if that's still the ask yeah no the, it, it is what, what they're looking for I mean they're looking for the grace periods to be extended until 1st of January 2023. So that is for sausages, mints, chilled prepared meats. Yeah, the chilled prepared meals, meats. Yeah. And then the export Organic health certificates. Foods, yeah, yeah. The, the three-month grace period, which is there at the moment, is uh, absolves people from having export health certificates accompany food products coming in from GB because they're expensive and they need a vet to sign off. So it is onerous for supermarkets to have to have these things for every single pallet of food that comes in from Great Britain to Northern Ireland shelves. But I think the UK's ask is, you know, give us a two-year period to to work out an alternative solution which will be a permanent solution that will make life as easy as possible for supermarkets and other and other people but again the UK argument is surely the existence of Lincolnshire sausages in Northern Ireland 
does not pose a risk to the single market. Surely a bulb being sent from Bedfordshire to Ballymena does not pose a risk for, to the single market. And, you know, they're, they're, they're continuing along that track. And what is um, the response to that? The Cumberland sausage priced in sterling, destined for a supermarket in Northern Ireland, the like of Sainsbury's, which doesn't even exist south of the border, is surely not destined for the single market. What's the answer from the European side on something that seems, at least on the face of it, a statement of the obvious? Well, the answer is that the European Union has other customers, not just the UK. They have free trade agreements around the world, and those free trade partners want to know that EU food is safe and that the EU runs a robust regime covering food safety and animal health. And if you have this kind of grey market in Northern Ireland where stuff could be getting through, I mean, the argument you always hear in Brussels is, look, yes, of course, in the first six months of 2021, we're not going to see vast quantities of Lincolnshire sausages flooding over the border into the south and then turning up in Bordeaux or Vienna. But the argument is, look, the market adapts. You know, people will adapt to ambiguous situations and if there's money to be made or shortcuts to be had then people will do that and the European single market is you know as far as the commission and member states are concerned is a prize that is worth defending and the integrity of the single market has to be defended at all costs and it's not enough to say that sure these are only a few sausages or a few bulbs the fact is that the UK is not going to be following EU food safety and animal health and plant safety rules they were given the invitation to do that but the view in Brussels is and member states is the UK deliberately rejected that offer so that they could enter a free trade agreement with the United States and not be constrained by tighter food safety rules. Now, that, right. that's a fairly so blunt... access to the uh, British expensive. banger is collateral damage in this ideological spot. And, yeah, but it goes and from and British the, the bangers British into vaccines, which is the other area of concern that we saw, uh, you know, the, the, in Brussels. There is a suspicious mindset there, and it does speak to the lack of trust uh, that exists uh, around this agreement for whatever reason. Uh, but the, the fact that somebody somewhere in Brussels identified Northern Ireland as a weak spot uh, for the transport of vaccines, uh, you know, that takes it to a whole new level. It's not just concern about Lincolnshire sausages or bulbs in Ballymena. Uh, Peter Robinson, actually writing in the Belfast newsletter today, said the DUP's rhetoric and the DUP stated position is still that Northern Ireland must be quote-unquote freed from the protocol as articulated by the party's leader Arlene Foster. Peter Robinson says it's an inconsistent position to uphold the institutions in Northern Ireland i.e. the Stormont Assembly which will implement the protocol and at the same time be calling in Westminster and publicly within Northern Ireland for the abolition of the protocol. He puts it into quite a hard choice and Sean you were mentioning earlier that a lot of the contact between the DUP and their lobbying of the British government is via Zoom into the Houses of Parliament. However Peter Robinson is saying that well once this pandemic passes and people are able to take to the streets again there's a high likelihood that they will. Well yes I mean that, that it's, he is raising the, the spectre there of disorder in uh, Northern Ireland. It depends on is it the lack of Lincolnshire sausages that would mobilise a mob onto the street, I don't know. Is COVID-19 and the movement restrictions the only thing that's holding people back in? Is it the cold weather? Who knows whether these threats are real or exaggerated? I mean, we saw the curious case of the port workers in Larne being withdrawn by the local council there because of apparent threats or of intimidation, which the police investigated and couldn't find any evidence of 
threats of intimidation. So, and they've since returned. Know, it, indeed, but it, it's you know a curious situation. But certainly, there is unhappiness in in uh, Northern Ireland about the situation. Whether that unhappiness were to spill over into civil unrest, who knows? Certainly, it's not a nice time of the year to be going out on the streets. And I can tell you, the streets of London out here are freezing. People have been talking about the uh, Great Frost of 1709 as being the last time they had such a hit to the economy. But it's, you were uh, working in Brussels uh, then, weren't you? Pretty frosty. <laughs> I think I probably was. <laughs> Just on, on, on the point of British arguments and the DUP, I mean, what, what I'm detecting from London now is that throughout the first weeks of January when Ian Paisley Jr. and others were saying, we've got to trigger Article 16, the British government was saying, no, you can't be doing that. You know, we have to let this thing bed down. You need a very high bar to trigger Article 16. Lo and behold, one Friday afternoon, the commission appears to trigger Article 16. So that's why the British are saying, look, we were so angry about this. And that caused a dam burst of anger and dismay across the board in Northern Ireland, civil society, DUP, uniting nationalist unionist Dublin London and so on for the first time ever but you see the argument is, is sort of constantly shifting now because on the one hand yes things were very bad in terms of deliveries in terms of paperwork problems in the first couple of weeks of January but as I think Sean probably saw this as well the Northern Ireland Affairs Committee during the week people are saying yes it was it was horrendous at, at the beginning but companies are adapting it's it's not as bad I mean I spoke to one industry person during the week who, who covers an awful lot of the agri-food business in Northern Ireland and they're saying yes we had problems we made mistakes, but we're actually getting on with it. What the UK seem to be pushing now as their prime argument is that their inboxes are weighed down with letters and emails and complaints from ordinary people, people who've ordered seeds from Kent for decades and suddenly they can't, people who order bottles of wine on Amazon who suddenly can't. And what I suspect is going on here is that these are voters in the end and the DUP is losing the argument right, left and centre and voters are going somewhere else. They're going to the traditional unionist voice under Jim Allister or they're going to the Alliance Party. And of course, we have assembly elections in Northern Ireland next year. So, you know, there's a lot of moving parts and a lot of things that people are trying to grab onto in this current debate because you would you would imagine in some sense okay the commission made a terrible blunder they've been apologizing ever since you would think that tempers would have cooled and emotions died down a bit but i think the uk still wants to optimize this moment that they have to get you know, big changes to the protocol. Right. Of course they do. And, and not just the protocol, I suspect, Tony, but uh, any other easements or facilitations they can get for the main trade flow, which is across the short straits. Remember, they haven't even started uh, doing their own customs and SPS controls. They're not due to come in until April for customs and, and uh, July for the, the health checks on products coming into the country. So there are uh, lots of pressure points in the system. But now they have been gifted this golden opportunity by the European Commission to push in and push in hard and the commission is on the back foot I think on this one so the British being the good old hardball negotiators that everybody knows them to be are not going to let this opportunity pass without trying to extract something out of the commission. Right it should be mentioned as well that in this neck of the woods life is not without its frictions our colleague Connor Kane was reporting on the traffic from Ross Lair and we've also seen friction in Dublin revenue the revenue commissioners here were apologising for glitches in the software which at times of high traffic was taking quite a long time to process declarations much to the consternation of the Irish Road Haulage Association but the level of frustration with process isn't necessarily translating into political action in a way that would suggest the electoral threat it does in other necks of the woods. 
Well, it's probably because it's not really impacting on ordinary voters. I mean, Tony was talking about the the Amazon effect, let's call it, of of people ordering stuff in Northern Ireland and not uh, having it delivered. There has been some of that uh, in uh, the Republic of Ireland, but not as much as in Northern Ireland. And there are alternative ways around this. And I mean, it look, in the case of Amazon, it looks like uh, they're going to set up a separate mm. warehouse uh, on the, in West Dublin. They're already trucking stuff in from France through Rosslare. That's why there are more trucks on the roads. I mean, I remember when the reporter in the, in the southeast used to do stories about people complaining that there was an absence of port traffic. Now they're complaining that there's a surfeit of port traffic. But there is certainly a, a big drop in port traffic in Dublin. The volumes are down 50% this January compared to January 2020. Which can't entirely and be accounted for by pre-Christmas stockpiling at this stage. I mean, we're, we're through that glut, presumably, at this stage. We are. I mean, there's, there's a fair bit of anecdotal from people uh, in our Ireland and in in Britain as well, who had decided, look, I don't want to do anything until March because I want to see how all of this new customs stuff plays out and let the systems settle down and let the teething troubles go through. But they are now starting to wonder why there's such a drop in Dublin port. There is, of course, been this huge, I think it was a 480% increase in traffic through Rosslare going straight to France. So that's definitely accounts for a big chunk of the drop going through Dublin port. But some of the other numbers that stood out for me there were from the revenue commissioners talking about the amount of customs forms that they've been processing and perhaps giving us an indication as to why their machines have been slowing down at peak times. But they processed 1.8 million customs forms in the month of January, but they processed 1.6 million for the entire of 2020. So they did more forms in January than they did for the whole of last year. And that shows you the upsurge in customs forms. They'd projected that they'd have to do about 20 million a year. But based on that first month's figure for a lower level of volume of trade, it suggests that they've undershot on the number of forms that they would have to process and have a computer system capable of handling that. And I think one of the the issues has been this whole thing about groupage. Lots of small orders, the classic Amazon or mail order deliveries bundled into one big consignment but each of them having to be a separate customs file and that has just multiplied the amount of customs documentation that has to be declared and processed in the system. I heard actually I was talking to somebody in the logistics area earlier in the week and listening to somebody subsequently there is a great attraction of traffic going through Rosslare because of the predictability of it okay it takes 23 hours to get from Rosslare to Dunkirk but at least you know it's only going to take 23 hours the unpredictability of being stuck on the land bridge is something that hauliers are increasingly growing warier of and so it just has become more attractive to go through Ross Lair. Yeah, and it also helps with the tachograph for the driver's rest periods as yeah, well. They're, they're uh, and it, it cuts out all the paperwork. So in a time of shortage of customs agents, the people who fill in these complex forms, be they online or in ye olde paper, uh, you just don't have to do that if you're going on those direct routes. So, yeah, it costs a bit more up front. It takes a bit more time, but you do get that certainty, and that certainty is, is a valuable thing. All right. Uh, Sean, you mentioned unhappiness earlier, so let's continue in the vein on unhappiness. And there is some in where, where you are 
in the area of financial services, there's also happiness, Tony, closer to where you are in the form of Amsterdam. But let's start with the whole area of equivalence, which we haven't really hit on much so far at, the, uh, at this point in the year. But it's it's becoming a growing concern. The Governor of the Bank of England has been talking about the area of equivalence and saying it's impossible really for the UK to be expected to stay in regulatory lockstep with the European Union. Well, they they don't want to be a rule taker and you can understand it to to quite a large extent. The the City of London is the preeminent financial centre in Europe and it didn't get that way by having rubbishy regulations. The, The regulatory environment here is pretty good and they would have been traditionally big importers of ideas on regulation into the European system and now to be told, well, you've got to tell us exactly what you're doing and stick pretty close to us and if we don't like the look of what you're doing, we'll cut you off. It's quite galling for them to be in that position. However, we were expecting, and I think we've mentioned it a few times on uh, the podcast, an equivalence ruling from the Commission that was talked of uh, by last summer, then perhaps by the end of the year. Now they're talking about having a look at it again in March. But Tony has mentioned before about the slowing down, this reason of the Commission wanting to find out more about what their intentions are on divergence from the, the European rules, which are basically both the City of London and all the other financial centres in Europe. Are That's another thing Andrew Bailey objects to, this idea of being asked to say exactly in advance where they yes. intend to diverge. He said just, it's just impossible to predict that. Well, it is. And, and you could say you know, they have an equivalence ruling for New York. But does anybody know what the Americans are going to do in terms of their rules and regulations? You, you don't know about divergence until it starts to happen, until the papers start to flow in the regulatory offices. So you, you kind of have to take a, a chance sooner or later. But the fact that it is a unilateral grant by the European side, which can be unilaterally withdrawn at any stage, should give safeguards to the Commission. However, because they haven't issued this um, equivalency ruling, it's had impacts on the ability of European banks to trade European stocks on a stock exchanges that are not regulated within the European Union. So they've had to shift their trade patterns into exchanges that are inside the European Union. And as a result, the City of London has lost out big time on share dealing, very big time, in fact. And a lot of that action, the lion's share of it has gone to Amsterdam. Uh, So that's gone from about two and a half billion monthly volumes to uh, just over nine billion in monthly volumes in the first month of proper Brexit. So City of London had about 17 and a half billion monthly volume on average last year. Last month, it was 8.6 billion. We've seen pickups also in Paris and Frankfurt. Dublin has even got a little bit of extra action out of this as well. But yeah, this is one of the effects of uh, the Brexit situation. There's talk of uh, carbon emissions trading shifting to Amsterdam as well. Derivatives trades also indications there that a lot of that trading action has shifted onto continental exchanges also. Right. Um, whether that persists, I don't know. Uh, we'll have to wait and see and perhaps start looking a bit more in depth at the financial services situation. But of course, the City of London would love to get this back. Part of their pitch is this doesn't really suit anybody. Weakening Europe's premier, premier financial centre, other European cities aren't going to build that kind of critical scale and ultimately, both sides are going to lose out to the likes of New York. Right. Before we wrap up on financial services, Sean, is it a bit of a phony war? Is there broad agreement between the US and Europe 
and the UK on the norms of financial regulation and that if the will was there it wouldn't be really that difficult to at least agree the principles if not the politics. Yes there is because the, a lot of the financial regulations are done through the, the Basel process that's um, Bank of International Settlements in, in the banking domain so you know global standards to compete globally you, you kind of need global standards and this whole idea of trying to amalgamate European, uh, UK, US standards to try and uh, impose them on the rest of the world and effectively maintain the kind of financial hegemony that Western banking and finance has relies on their regulatory capacity. So keeping in alignment uh, is something that is of strategic value and importance to the broad West. So I think they are going to stay fairly much in alignment. But this issue is politicised and it is also, there are genuine technical and legal problems. It is solvable, but the longer it goes on without a solution, the more some of that business that has drifted away from the City of London might stay permanently uh, outside. And other countries will, of course, be looking to grab whatever slice of the action and the money that goes with it and the taxes that go with it as possible. Wednesday passed, Ursula von der Leyen was here in the European Parliament facing MEPs in a variety of languages. But let's hear the bit she concentrated on in English and directed specifically at the Irish MEPs. And as far as the mechanism goes, allow me a word on the island of Ireland. The bottom line is that mistakes were made in the process leading up to the decision. And I deeply regret that. But in the end, we got it right. And I can reassure you that my commission will do its utmost to protect the peace of Northern Ireland, just as it has done throughout the entire Brexit process. Tony, she was both apologising and not apologising in, in some respects. What was the background to why Ursula von der Leyen was on her feet and what do we know now after the event in terms of how it all went terribly wrong? Yeah, well, Sean alluded there obviously to the, the whole Article 16 debacle on the 29th of January and wider concerns and growing dis- dismay and disenchantment among member states and and voters uh, at the slow rollout of the covid vaccine in Europe and you know she had faced quite a bit of criticism in the german press and was under pressure to start explaining things a bit better and to be a bit more prominent i mean she's she's great at recording video messages and putting them out on twitter and she has been giving quite a few interviews to the german press she did give group interviews there to european media in brussels uh, european newspapers but obviously it was eventually she was going to have to put herself before the European Parliament and explain the whole strategy of the EU buying vaccines in bulk and you know we've talked about this before but yeah she she defended that she said you know this was absolutely the right thing to do smaller poorer member states would not have, would have been left behind if bigger richer ones had just gone in in a free for all to buy vaccines from big pharma this was european solidarity in action but of course europe was slower because it takes longer to authorize these vaccines uh, again no apologies there she said this is all about injecting healthy people with biologically active ingredients uh, and substances and of course we've got very high vaccine skepticism in europe so she's saying you know i'm not apologizing for that she did apologize over the article 16 thing as as it was a bit less solidarity being shown there uh, you know not consulting member states not even 
consulting the member state most affected by its commissioner in the form of Mairead McGuinness. Are we any the wiser as to how what happened happened? Not really. I mean, you know, people who are following this at the sort of micro level have suspicions that an individual in the Brexit task force was directed by Ursula von der Leyen's cabinet to draft an article that covered this potential loophole of Northern Ireland and the, and the protocol when it comes to these export authorizations for vaccines. But the commission is not saying who that was or what the actual chain of command was. I mean, when a regulation like this evolves at speed, you know, you've got the different directorates general and, and legal services of, of the commission all feeding into a regulation. But this was all done at speed and apparently the draft version of it on, on the Friday morning didn't have any reference to Northern Ireland. But when it appeared at the last minute on Friday afternoon, there was this reference buried in there about Northern Ireland and Article 16. And yes, nobody knows how and why. And certainly the Irish government registered their real anger about this on the record at, at a co-repair meeting of, of EU ambassadors last week. Right. And but, having pointed the uh, finger at Valdis Dombrovskis, she then went on and said, well, look, the book stops with me. I take responsibility. So there's a, a, there was an effort to kind of patch up things within the commission as well in her statement for the European Yeah, Parliament, I mean, absolutely. Maybe. I mean, yeah, she, she, I spoke to one of uh, Valdis Dombrovskis's staff that week who said that she received about 50 WhatsApp messages when it was... The finger was pointed at him. He's the trade commissioner, obviously. She said these messages contained the words under and bus. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, so, so yes, there was a there was a pretty horrendous blame game going on. But, I mean, for the Irish government, the priority was to find out, you know, not, not so much why did this happen, but how can we stop this happening in future? I think people now recognise that Northern Ireland is this strange uh, hybrid creature that has one foot in the UK and one foot in the EU. And there could be lots of legislation coming down the tracks that might throw up some un- unforeseen consequence with the protocol with Northern Ireland. And, you know, you need to ha- sort of have an early warning system. And yes, Maria McGuinness will be, I think, instrumental in, you know, looking at stuff. Not everybody in the Commission has the A to Z on the Northern Ireland Protocol and what legislation might uh, hit it. One example is the the Green Deal, which the Europe's big project, uh, flag, flagship project to be carbon neutral by 2050. A carbon adjustment tax for companies outside the EU wanting to ship goods into the EU. If those goods have you know a heavy carbon footprint, then there's there's a tax to try and get everybody to follow these normative approaches to to climate change. But what happens if the if if Great Britain produces stuff that has a big carbon footprint and it goes into Northern Ireland? Will there be a tariff there? Those are the kind of things that they're looking at. And again, this fed into the wider discussion about the democratic deficit. Northern Ireland is in the single market, but it has no MEPs. There's no ministerial presence for Northern Ireland, uh, the Northern Ireland executive. How can you fix that? And there was a, a joint letter by most of uh, Ireland's MEPs to the Commission and the President of the Council and the Parliament saying, look, we need to have this connective tissue between the institutions and Northern Ireland because there is a duty of care to, to Northern Ireland. People are living under this strange hybrid regime and they need to have some way of being heard and their voices listened to. Sean, uh, the words under bus appear also in the word blunder bus, which was typified the tone of what the DUP was directing at the British government. I mean, while there was some teeing and glee about this great commission blunder, it has provided the DUP a stick 
with which to beat the British government at a time when the British government might have other fish to fry with the European Union and may want to just get away from this whole Article 16 Northern Ireland Protocol part of the negotiations and start cutting deals in the areas like, for example, financial services and equivalents. So after the initial glee dissipated, is this something actually ultimately that could become quite unwelcome for the British government? No, I think the the whole COVID politique has been quite beneficial to them and, and will continue to be. And certainly in terms of domestic messaging here in Britain, hardly uh, um, any minister has, misses the opportunity to have a lash at the European Commission over the vaccine situation, particularly the speed of delivery of vaccines within the European Union. But they also talk about the approval process. We've spoken before about why the British, using the same EU law, by the way, got their vaccines out faster because of an emergency procedure rather than a full certification, which the EU have gone down. But they were authorised under the same EU law. Nevertheless, when you're spinning hard on a radio talk show, you can bash the European Union and say, we're doing it faster than them. It would have been worse if we'd stayed in, more people would have died, etc., etc., even though they have the highest death toll of any European country. But also, they will constantly have a go at the European Union. This is the, their best area for criticising them. Uh, even in today's figures, where we had this huge drop, at, uh, almost 10% drop in economic activity, mainly because of the covid crisis. The British have been saying, yes, but we're going to spring back faster than the Europeans will because we've got our vaccines out faster than they have and we will be able to open up the economy faster than they can open up their economy. So in every uh, opportunity that comes along, they are not hesitating to put the boot into the European Union, certainly on the domestic stage. Whether it uh, translates across, I mean, we've spoken many, many times before about how a lot of British politicians seem to talk as if nobody else in Europe can hear what they're saying, whether this feeds into the general tone of mistrust on both sides that seems to characterise a lot of these talks, whether that continues to undermine it. But certainly the the debacle that the Commission walked itself into over the vaccines, how it went from a commercial dispute with a single company into very briefly drawing a border across a place where you promised for four years you would never allow a border to be drawn is simply breathtaking and staggering. Right. I would have to say, I'd have to say, just Sean, on that on that point, that that is, I mean, the the, the sort of material effect of this regulation on Northern Ireland. You know, the idea that this, that this put a hard border is, is like quite strongly disputed. Uh, in other words, the regulation would have meant that any vaccines leaving the European Union to go to third countries would require an authorization. But if it's just going to another member state, it wouldn't need that authorization. And because Northern Ireland is deemed to be just like another member state, normally vaccines going to Northern Ireland wouldn't have required this export authorization. But then someone said, ah, wait a second, you've got unfettered access into GB, so that's a potential backdoor. So all that all that the regulation would have meant would have been that vaccines going to Northern Ireland would have to be authorised before they left the factory. They'd have to get this authorisation to make sure that those vaccines weren't by contract due to go to some other member state or some, some other part of the EU. Right. Yes, but Tony, you make the mistake there of assuming that facts actually matter in British <laughs> political discourse. We know that they don't, and the Commission walked themselves into a door there. Well, that Plus, absolutely. How can, how can true, we have yeah. spent the past four years talking about Northern Ireland uh, in the context of the European Union and an existential crisis? Does the people over in Brussels not read newspapers when they draft these things? Well, Ursula von der Leyen wasn't the only 
German woman this week, genning up on Northern Ireland. Tony, we're going to be joined by somebody else who is also getting reacquainted with Northern Ireland. So we're going to be talking to Stephanie Bolzen, who is a correspondent with Die Welt, uh, the German newspaper. She's based in London, and she, I think, will have an excellent perspective on everything because not only has she just come back from Larne and Belfast, uh, where she went for a couple of days to see what the protocol was like on the ground in Northern Ireland and to see what this whole crisis was about between London and Brussels. She's also got a, a good handle on German politics and how people in Germany view Ursula von der Leyen's performance. And thirdly, she was one of the two journalists who interviewed Pascal Sorio, the chief executive of AstraZeneca, that famous interview that he gave to Die Welt and La Repubblica, which really wound up the European Commission and led them to start demanding that the contract between the Commission and AstraZeneca be published so that the Commission could vindicate their position on what this contract was all about. Let's get her up on Skype and hear from her then. Hello. Hi, Stephanie. Stephanie Bolson, thanks very much for joining Brexit Republic, uh, great to have you on the podcast. You've just returned from Belfast. How did you get on? You were there for a few days. Uh, what were your impressions? Well, I went to uh, Belfast and Lan because we thought that the implementation of the Northern Ireland Protocol is a really important story. And because I, I read there were shelves empty, that there were so many problems with goods coming from GB to NI. And also on, on the background of the triggering of Article 16 by the European Commission, you can see how delicate the whole situation is there. It was important to go there because it is so complex and so complicated. You have to be on the ground to understand a little bit what's going on there. And did, did you see empty supermarket shelves or what impression did you get? No, I didn't see any uh, supermarket shelves. And I found a lot of people, representatives of the business community, who were very keen to emphasize that, yes, there was a little bit of problems with deliveries and that uh, people maybe in the supermarkets had less selection of things. But I think there was a number given to me by the Northern Ireland Retail Consortium and they said out of something like 40,000 products they have in supermarkets, maybe around 300 in the worst days were missing. So it's really not like people can't get in the supermarkets what they want. I think my impression was that certain parts of the political scene were quite keen to create deliberately the impression that uh, supermarkets were going empty. So I, I guess supermarket shelves and, and consumer choice is one thing, but at the same time for unionists, th there's a really you know, visceral sense that they are no longer on the same footing as the rest of the UK. Did you get that sense from people you talked to? Yeah, definitely. I mean, for example, I spoke to the mayor of Larne. We were standing in the port and he pointed to the open sea and was saying, look, the European Union always spoke about never having a border in Ireland and now the border is right here. But in a way, hearing this from the DUP or from loyalists, that wasn't really surprising. What I thought more important is now um, how normal people are affected. So, for example, I spoke to someone who runs a garden center and he said, well, 2020 was a great year for us because everybody, because lockdown has now become passionate gardener. But now we are facing that our stock is very soon empty because we can't get any more uh, plants and bulbs and things, uh, things from Britain. And also people ordering stuff from Amazon 
or if you were talking to uh, hauliers who are saying uh, they are just overwhelmed by paperwork or small businesses who say, look, my supplier in Britain is saying, no, we're not sending you anything anymore. It's too much paperwork. It's too costly. And it, it's not worth the turn turnover I have in Northern Ireland. And what do you think the response to that would be from, say, the, the German government? Because all of this controversy is now being handled by the European Commission, but member states are also keeping a close watch and people always talk about the sanctity of the single market, the integrity of the single market, and that, you know, checks and controls have to happen. And this is all just a consequence of Brexit. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I, I, I get this quite stubborn attitude from many sites in the European Union, uh, in the member states. They are saying it was a British choice. And with that choice come very complicated situations. And you, you see that now in Northern Ireland. And over all these years of negotiations, the protection and the integrity of the single market was the priority of the European Commission and of the member states. They will probably look at this and it might worry them, especially because, as you know much better than I do, but Northern Ireland is not only economic challenge now, it's much more politically delicate and the peace process is very delicate. And I think, I hope actually, there will be increasingly also um, an awareness on the continent of that and maybe some flexibility will be shown. But I think the principles of the Northern Ireland Protocol will not be changed. And you, you said you spoke to loyalists when you were there. What did they say about what's happening? And did they give any, any indication that things could get serious, that they may take a more proactive role, maybe, I don't know, street protests or, you know, escalating the, those kind of tensions that you talked about? I mean, that was really interesting. There were, I spoke to two loyalist activists, and they were both I think quite deliberately ambiguous about what could happen. They, of course, said because of the lockdown and the pandemic, uh, there weren't any street protests now. But between the lines, they were indicating that that was perfectly possible as soon as the lockdown is over. What I found very interesting was I, talk, I talked to one loyalist who was a little bit older, and he said the problem for them now was kind of they didn't know who the enemy was anymore. So is it the British government? Is it the European Commission? Who do they target? And I think in, in that context, it was very interesting what happened in Lan when the graffiti in Lan popped up and threatening EU, or not EU only, but border post staff. And the background of that, that probably there weren't really threats, but the DUP withdrew the personnel anyway. You know... <laughs> It is, it is so many layers. It is very complicated. Uh, to be honest, I struggle to write that down for a German audience. Well, this is the thing, you see, because, you know, the, 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 these are very local layers, as you say. The, this is the texture of a conflict going back decades, if not centuries. Yet it is completely embroidered now with the rules of the single market and the... German government and the Croatian government and the Bulgarian government all have a stake in how this is resolved. It's it's a very strange situation to be in. Yes, definitely it is. And and it is even more because the, the priority since the Brexit referendum for the Europeans was to maintain the, the peace and stability in Northern Ireland. And now the risk is that if there is a growing discontent of people um, and this is a little bit what I got from the unionist side or loyalist side. They were saying, well, if if discontent grows, uh, we have election for Stormont next year. And then in 2024, there is a vote on the Northern Irish Protocol itself. 
well, uh, see what you get if you don't show flexibility. And and also this readiness to say, well, Northern Ireland can be like the oil that the British government can pour into the fire of Brexit and using Northern Ireland as a lever to uh, press Brussels on other things like access to um, the financial market, the, the city equivalence question and so on. I, I must say, I was rather shocked by that because at the end of the day, what are we talking about? We are talking about the livelihood of, of, of people and their income and how they can how they can live. So I, I found this quite upsetting. Yeah. So in, in other words, the, the UK, the, the suspicion is that the UK government could perhaps start to manipulate the kinds of controls they have or how they implement the protocol in order to extract concessions from the European Union on financial services and other things? Yeah, I mean, this is what, what loyalists say, and this is probably what they hope. Um, I I don't know. My impression is that in London, there are so many other things and much, not much bigger things at stake, but there are so many, so many things at stake. And if you look at the language that came out of the meeting between uh, Michael Gove and uh, Maros Shevkovic yesterday, it seems like they are trying to calm down. But I, I do really think that the British government will press the European Commission to be more flexible on certain things. Maybe, for example, extending the, the grace period for SPS checks, which actually is due to run out on the 1st of April. I, I, I don't know. I don't have information. I'm not in Brussels like you are. If, if there's a possibility that the European Commission can be flexible on that. But talking to people in, in Northern Ireland now, I really have empathy with them and, and I hope that Brussels will not only insist on, on rules and look at the situation on the ground. Yes, okay, well, that that's obviously where the politics of this this will go. It's it's going to take a lot of skill, I think, on both sides, on all sides for this to work. Just briefly, Stephanie, before before you go, we, we've been talking on the podcast about Ursula von der Leyen and the, the whole run-up to the triggering of our attempted triggering of Article 16 and the background of the vaccine rollout in Europe. From a German perspective, how do you think she has handled this whole affair and how is her reputation in Germany and, and in the German press at the moment? It is certainly damaged. I mean, you can see day by day how especially Bild, the big paper in Germany, is criticising her. They are now even legally demanding to see the contract that the European Commission has done with the pharma companies such as AstraZeneca and others, they are chasing her very much and not only built, I mean, uh, Spiegel, ourselves, the world, we have been very critical of the way she has handled the vaccine strategy and rightly so because, I mean, I look at my country and I look at my parents and they are still waiting for a vaccine and only two or maybe now 3% of Germans are vaccinated, while here in the UK, you have now, I think, uh, all over 75s already had the vaccine. And that's something that I think Ursula von der Leyen was not very good at handling the communication of this. And people were waiting for her to, to step up, to explain herself. And then instead, it seemed like she reacted in a panic. She triggered Article 16 or people around her um, without thinking much about it. Then she blamed another commissioner for that. So it was everybody else's fault until she realized that this would only bring her into an even more difficult place. And then she started saying, well, we, we have we have certainly done mistakes. But I don't think that the criticism of her in Germany will cease until uh, there is really an absolute yeah, notable rise in, in the number of vaccines. 
Yes, well, we'll see how that all pans out. Uh, but for now, Stephanie, it's been a great pleasure to have you on the podcast, especially since you've just returned from Larn and Belfast, a very cold and locked down Belfast. I don't envy you necessarily, although, yeah, we all miss, well, I personally miss being there to see my family and so on, but I, it's so hard to travel at the moment. But And thanks again also for your perspectives on Ursula von der Leyen and the German reaction to her particular problems. Thank you for having me. And I must say, I love going to Ireland. I love going to Northern Ireland. People is lovely there and they are very, very generous. Okay, well, we'll give the last word today to Stephanie Bolson. That's it from me, Colm O'Mungoyne, RT's Deputy Foreign Editor here in Dublin. From me, Sean Whelan, RT's Correspondent in London. And from me, Tony Connolly, RTE's Europe Editor in Brussels. Thanks for listening. Thank you.